At this point, we're going to bring back Ms. McCluskey. As you know from uh, this morning, she is uh, no longer a practicing PA, but she does keep up her certification. She was uh, an adjunct she still is an adjunct faculty member at Drexel's PA program, uh, but she was an associate professor there for 10 years, and she now is an attorney with McCluskey Law Offices in Chester, Pennsylvania, and she focuses on health care and elder law, and she'll be speaking about malpractice issues. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for those who are returning from this morning's talk. Uh, appreciate the support. Okay, so today what I'm doing uh, is I'm talking about managing your risk against lawsuits. The objectives are basically is to understand, uh, again, the medical malpractice uh, costs that are involved when people get sued or even when they're being attempted to get sued. Um, understand the steps to the medical malpractice uh, suit um, so that you can sort of have an understanding about what happens at various stages when there's an ability to settle or back out or when you actually have to wind up going to court. Define the causes, the most common causes of mal ma medical malpractice claims. I'm sort of focusing more on physician assistance. Um, discuss the role of risk management and their strategies to decrease medical errors and liability, as well as realize the difference between employer and individual uh, medical malpractice, which I think is important um, as a practitioner um, because I know a lot of people take their insurance uh, from their employer, but sometimes you might want to consider uh, getting your own policy in addition to. Again, I need to give my disclaimer that this is not legal advice, this is merely general information, and that if you have specific questions about any kind of cases or issues, that you should uh, go to an attorney in your state. Okay, so to take a look at the cost of medical malpractice, um, depending on what they add into uh, the figure, um, you can come up uh, with anywhere between $35 billion and $55 billion a year in the cost of medical malpractice. Now, this top one uh, is from Harvard University study, and it included $55 billion a year, um, which also added in $45 billion of the cost of uh, defensive medicine, basically just ordering tests, uh, or getting referral specialty um, consultations because not because you feel it's really needed, but because you actually are fearing getting a lawsuit if you don't. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office um, felt that uh, medical malpractice costs about $35 billion a year. Um, they didn't include uh, physicians' work lo uh, lost work time. Some, some of the things I don't think that um, people realize that when you get sued, it takes a lot of time not only professionally, but also personally. You have to allot time in your schedule to talk to your attorney, to get interviewed, to get depositions, and then God forbid you actually have to go to court, that's a whole week or two off that you have to take away from your patient care. And that's a very significant um, in, when it, uh, in t terms of uh, cost. So basically, what is me medical malpractice? Um, generally, it's the failure of a physician, hospital, or an employee of a hospital uh, in rendering the use uh, of, you know, uh, I'm sorry, in rendering services to use the reasonable care, skill, or knowledge ordinary use, ordinarily used under similar circumstances. So basically, it's what you normally would do, what you should do, and it's the failure to do that. And then in, uh, in Pennsylvania, and some states tweak this definition a little bit um, in different states, but in Pennsylvania, it's the unwarranted departure 
from generally accepted standards of medical practice resulting in injury to a patient, including all liability-producing conduct arising from the rendition of professional medical services. And the reason why it's important to understand what your state's medical malpractice definition is, is in order to bring a suit, in addition to the other things for which we'll talk about um, for claims, um, is that you have to be able to meet and figure and, and meet all the elements within this. So it's important to understand what it is um, that your state says medical malpractice is, but in general, it's basically you know, the failure of the physician uh, to use uh, reasonable care, skill, or knowledge ordinarily used. Um, some facts about ma medical malpractice claims that I found. Um, in 2000, and, let's look at this one here. 2006, physicians paid out 12,000 medical malpractice payments. In 2008, it was 11,000, and 2009, it's 10,000. Even though this is a lot, and it still costs a lot to carry out a medical malpractice suit, you can sort of see that there's actually a trending downward of medical malpractice payments. And we think that that's probably because People are communicating better with their uh, uh, physicians and their patients. Uh, there's more quality standards in place, uh, and as well as having caps on damages. So it sort of takes away the plaintiff's uh, incentive to sue because the pain and suffering aren't as high if, there's, if you're in a state with ca caps. Um, I thought it was interesting that in the National Practitioner's Data Bank, uh, the, the most recent, well, relatively most recent with the report getting put out was in 2006, noted that physician assistants uh, only had about 113 claims made in the year 2006. And cumulatively, since t 1990, you've only had 11, about 1,100 claims made against physician assistants. So that's, on the one hand, great, because we normally, we usually don't get sued. We definitely don't get sued as often as our physician counterparts. And even though there's more physicians than PAs, when you still look at the numbers and compare apples to apples, PAs typically don't get sued as often as physicians. So medical malpractice um, filed, and this is more cumulative and more recent. For some reason, the National Practitioner Database divides it into allopathic and DOs. And this is for physicians um, and DOs. And then here are physician assistants and uh, uh, osteopathic PAs. And as you still see, uh, this cumulative number uh, is still really low, only 1,500 or so um, actually reach the point that medical malpractice payment has to be made. Uh, this is what's the most um, common reasons for medical malpractice against uh, physician assistants. As you see, it's primarily diagnostic-related as well as treatment-related. And that's very similar to physicians. Uh, on, uh, when people talk about medical malpractice, it's typically um, a civil claim. It's typically sort of like a contractual claim. And similar to a contractual claim, you need to meet four basic elements in a regular uh, negligence suit. And those elements are duty, breach, causation, and harm. And basically, what that means is that there has to be a duty between you and your patient. You had to have been in some sort of relationship that made that patient feel that you were taking care of them and you were taking care of that problem. So you have to have a duty. And then you have to have a breach of that duty. So that means that you have to you know, have had this duty, you were supposed to take care of them, and you did not take care of them. However, that's also linked to causation. Because you had a duty, which you didn't do, the failure of you to act on that duty actually caused that harm uh, to the patient or damage to the patient. 
all four of those things in a regular uh, negligence suit has to be met. In addition, when it comes to medicine, you have to have a professional relationship. You can't just have, you know, you have to be really careful. And I'm speaking very, very generally. But say, you know, your neighbor comes up and says, oh, you know, look at this. I've got this, you know, lump on my knee. What do you think? You don't have a duty to answer that question. All right, you might want to be neighborly. You might, well, you know, I always say, even though I'm not practicing, people still ask me questions. I always say the same thing. Well, I'm not practicing. You should see your own doctor, but maybe they didn't. But that's not medical. I have all these, you know, by the time I'm done answering the question with this disclaimer, they probably forgot their question. Um, but on, so if you run up to your neighbor and your neighbor just runs something by you and you go, oh, I'm not really sure, you should always say, but you should have that checked out. You don't actually have a relationship there. You're just answering a question, and that's it, and you're walking away. There's actually, it would be very difficult without more to prove that there is a professional uh, relationship, therefore duty there. Also, not only has there be a professional relationship, it has to involve a medical judgment beyond uh, common knowledge. So say you know, you're all standing at the fence, and your, your neighbor, who doesn't know anything about medicine, looks at the wound and says, oh, I think that's cancer. Well, you know, he doesn't have any kind of medical judgment. He doesn't have any training. He really can't be held to that fact. If you're looking at somebody and you say, well, you know, that looks like um, poison ivy. Okay, well, that's, not, that's fairly common knowledge. Most people know what poison ivy looks like. And as, as long as you don't have more, they really can't say that that was a professional relationship. But as you see, you have to have this professional relationship and you have to have a, uh, and the decision that you're making has to involve your medical knowledge and training. In order to determine whether or not, you know, yeah, sure, that's poison ivy, or is that something much more serious, um, if you're being sued as a professional, you need to have an expert to come in and give an expert opinion. That expert should be someone within your field. Usually, you can't have a physician judge what a PA can do as a, uh, as a medical expert against or for a PA. Nurses are not supposed to be able to come in and say, well, you know, as a PA, she should be able to do that. You can only get an expert who's within your own field. And with it, what that expert does is that, based on their judgment, they'll give you their expert opinion. And in order to determine whether or not you have met a standard of care issue, you need an expert opinion. And it's you know, fortunate that not only does the plaintiff need an expert opinion, obviously you need an expert opinion also so you can counter this. And that's when sort of all the infighting begins. Okay, so what is the standard of care? The standard of care requires a physician or a PA to act with the degree of skill and care ordinarily possessed by those in the same medical specialty acting under the same or similar circumstances. And again, this has to be established by experts. So what does that mean? Who can determine what a standard of care is when it comes to the medical malpractice uh, course? Well, there's a, there's a lot of wiggle room here. As physician assistants, we can actually be a, uh, we can establish a standard of care for most of the other professions in which, we, in which we practice as a group. So even though you're a dermatology PA, you could uh, be an uh, expert witness against, say, a family practice PA or for a family practice PA. And that's because of the way we're trained. We're trained, remember, in a general medical model. Now, you could make a really good argument to say this case was so special that a family practice PA probably wouldn't be able to 
determine what was going on here, that you would actually need a dermatological PA. And that really makes your case stronger. So, you know, if push comes to shove, the plaintiff might only be able to get a family practice PA to go against the dermatology PA, but if you're the one being sued, you could get a dermatology PA to be your expert, and your argument would be, this is something that a dermatology PA specializes in. You know, they, they do these kinds of excisions. Family practice PAs don't do that. So you see how there's sort of like this, you know, how you can start, start to stack your cards for and against um, the case. Uh, but basically, and however, with physicians, it's a little different. Like, you can get a general practice a general surgery doc to be an expert witness for, like, say, you know, a GYN doc. But it's really what they prefer to do is find the specialist within that area, and you would only use someone outside of that area if you really couldn't find somebody, like the plaintiffs, if they really couldn't find somebody to agree with them, they could probably find somebody in a, a you know, a, like a step out of that practice to maybe be their expert, which you really shouldn't do, but that's how it works here. Okay, these are um, the main causes of uh, act, uh, action for malpractice. Failure or delay of diagnosis. Now, the thing is with malpractice is that you're allowed to make mistakes. Okay, it's, it's okay to make mistakes, and the whole basis of these suits are not because you just made a mistake. What it is is that this is like a failure, like there was no other way that you could have gone unless you made a mistake. I mean, like a serious error, malpractice. Okay, so failure or delay of correct diagnosis means that if you thought that somebody had um, a melanoma, but you were busy, you forgot, you did this, you did that, and the patient fell through the holes and then winds up, you know, having some serious issues and, you know, damage, uh, that's a failure or delay. Now, if you were, you couldn't decide between two different types of lesions or, you know, I don't know if you should have this procedure or that procedure, and you documented all that and you, you know, you checked with your doctor and you, you had a real firm decision and you made a good decision, but it was a wrong decision, that's not malpractice. That's, that's, just a, that's just a mistake that, that will be argued, but hopefully, you know, as we go on, we'll say, you know, we'll teach you different things that you can do to protect yourself against malpractice for just mistakes. Failure to make or delay a referral. If you don't send them out when you're supposed to, if you see something that needs to go to a general surgeon, if you see something that needs to go to a cardiologist, and you fail to do that, and something happens to that patient regarding that issue. You know, somebody came in, they were, you were working with them, and they were like, oh, I had this crushing, you know, chest pain. And you're like, yeah, 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 well, I'm just going to do the shave biopsy, and then you walk away. And you don't do anything. And then that patient walks out and has a heart attack. That plaintiff's lawyer is going to try like heck to link you to what happens to that patient. And so that's why, you know, lawyers are, you know, good at what they do and bad at what they do, because they try to say, they try to separate you as far as possible from what actually happened to that patient. But failure uh, to make or delay a referral, failure to communicate with your supervising physician. This is the one that I've seen, you know, when I was actually, uh, I've been an expert witness a couple of times where patient, uh, PAs will go out and make a, de uh, a decision or a call on their own. That's not a problem, that's how we work. What the problem is, is that if there's a problem that you should have run by your physician, or depending on what your protocols is, if you work outside that protocol, and they will try to nail you for um, failure of communication. And these are just like little 
chips on the scale trying to build this case in medical malpractice. So, you know, when you get these uh, summons and, like, they, they tell you, you know, why you're being sued, they'll make a whole list of things, failure to diagnose, failure to refer, failure to communicate, and then your lawyer will try to pick out as many as these and, like, get them off your plate to make their case weaker and weaker. Practicing outside the scope of your care. That's, that's another problem. Even though when I was uh, practicing, I was a house officer at a hospital, and I did a lot of surgical uh, subspecialties. So I did orthopedics and neurosurgery, GYN, GU. But even though I could do all that stuff, and my doctors could do all that stuff, when I saw a neurologic patient, if they had, let's just say, they had um, a hip fracture. Okay, I couldn't with, well, not, a hip fracture's not good. How about like a broken arm? Okay, I would not be able to put on a cast or a splint as a neurosurgical PA. I would have to say, you know what, you're going to have to consult ortho, and then I can help you with that. So, you know, I'd go in, I'd say, okay, fine, that's a neurosurgery, and then i walk out, and then i get the ortho thing, and i walk back in, and they're like, you were just in here? Yeah, this is a different thing, because I'm now wearing my orthopedic hat, and now I can work as an orthopedist. So you need to make sure that you stay within your scope of practice, even though you can do so much more. And remember, the scope of practice isn't your scope of practice. It's also based on your physician's scope of practice. So even though you might have years of experience as a dermatology PA, and you then go to, let's say, GYN, and then somebody has this rash on their arm, which is not STD-related, STI-related, you, you, unless your doctor is okay with you treating that or you check with them or you have communication with them, you're not supposed to treat that. You're supposed to refer it because you're not wearing your derm hat anymore. You're wearing a GYN hat. And you just have to make sure that that's all balanced with what your physician does versus what you do. Improper treatment and negligent rep, uh, representation. This is going to be, I think, uh, a... a a little bit bigger of an issue with people moving toward doctorate degrees, okay? And even now the uh, PAs are getting more doctorate degrees. You're not allowed to say you're a doctor when you're practicing medicine unless you're a doctor. Now, if you're in an academic setting, you know, you can say, I'm a doctor, so-and-so. But if you're not actually a medical physician, you can't be in your, your office seeing a patient and go, oh, hi, I'm Dr. Smith. You can't do that because then people think that you're a physician and you're not allowed to do that. That's why there's some legislation coming up requiring identification. And they're trying to make it so that when you wear your name tag, which is so important, that it actually identifies you appropriately. Okay, so you can't walk around saying you're doctor so-and-so and taking care of patients unless you actually are a physician. Um, Okay, now this is all the charges against the uh, PAs. Then how they try to wrap in your physician, uh, your supervising physician. Because remember, when you get sued, right, you're holding hands with your supervising physician. You're also holding hands with all of your substitute physicians. And what the plaintiffs are going to do is they're going to be, okay, we've got the PA, and now we're going to try to link the PA to as many people as possible because they try to get into as many pockets as possible. Okay, so they're going to try to get to your supervising doctor. Okay, they're just going to look at it. They're going to try to see if they can make the link about, you know, supervision. And then they're going to look at your supervisors, and they're going to try to get the substitutes in. And then they're going to look at the hospitals that you work in. They're going to try to cast their net wide to pull in as many pockets as they possibly can. Because as this thing starts to shake out, people are going to be added and subtracted out of the pot. Um, some of the causes uh, against supervising physicians is failure to adequately supervise. 
Okay, depending on what your work agreement says, if you're a physician, if you never, ever, ever see a physician or your physician as a supervisor or input, you gotta change that. You have to be able to say, we are a team player, we work with teams with physicians, and this is how I communicate. It doesn't matter how you communicate within reason, it just means that you need to have some sort of mechanism built in somewhere in your system that you're not totally alone. Because when you have a question, who do you go to? You need to be able to fill in that blank because that will protect. Now, if your supervising physician doesn't even know your name because he's the supervising of like a lot of PAs, that's a problem. Uh, let's see, what else do we have? We have uh, a failure to follow the agreement's requirements. You know, your doc doesn't know what's in your agreement. They just tell you, yeah, go ahead. And it's not in the agreement. Or it says in your agreement you're not allowed to do that. That's a problem. You have to understand what's in your, your agreements. And so does your doctors. Allowing practice beyond scope of agreement. You know, if they said, oh, yeah, you know, oh, you know, you know all this stuff about dermatology and you can do these biopsies and punch biopsies and they can't, that's a problem. That's outside the scope of your agreement. Uh, and then finally, negligent hiring. You know, they hire somebody and they don't do a background check. They don't realize that you lost your license or that you actually have a drug problem and they've got you in, you know, some sort of, you know, working, you know, with a lot of narcotics. So negligent hiring is another issue. Okay, so let's take some real life examples. You have a patient who presents with a lump in the groin. Honest to God, comes into the thing, tells the practitioner, I got a lump in the groin. The practitioner looks at it, examines it, measures it. Oh, you've got a firm, non-movable, one by three centimeter groin lump. I don't know why. She sends him to GI. She thinks it's a hernia. It's okay. You don't have to be right. You just have to be you know, you have to be thinking. You got to demonstrate that you're doing some relative logical thinking. Now, if she sent them to orthopedics, that would be a problem because that would be hard to make that link. Okay, fine, groin lump, you know, you think it's in a hernia, that's okay. She sends them to the GI, never follows up. Okay, the GI guy looks at them and says, oh, that's, that's definitely not a hernia. Okay, lets them go. He comes back to the um, practitioner multiple occasions. He doesn't really mention it because one, she th they thought she was a, uh, a doctor. Two, they figured and they trusted, oh, she knows me, she's got the record right there, she knows about this lump, I'm not mentioning anything. So the patient doesn't mention anything. The lady looks at him over and over again over a period of years, never looks in the chart. So finally, the guy gets all mad, which is so typical. You know, your patient gets mad, they go to another practitioner, and the pra practitioner goes, oh my God, you've got lymphoma. She didn't say that. She said, oh my God, you got to be worked up. Then they discovered he had lymphoma. They sue successfully for failure to diagnose, failure to treat, and negligent representation because the guy swore the lady was a doctor, and that was a problem. Um, and then the failure to diagnose because it's okay that she missed it, but she never came back to figure it out and look at it again. Okay, so, you know, it would be terrible, but let's just say you wind up getting sued or you're in a position that you may be sued. Some of the things that, we, um, that you need to meet um, or your attorney needs to meet is the fact that there was a duty and hallway consults are a big deal, not a big deal, but they sometimes, you know, come ahead. You know how anyone who works in a hospital, you're walking down the hallway and you go, oh, you know what, I got this patient, blah, 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 and they give you some advice, and then you act on that advice, okay? 
sometimes they try to link that hallway consult, and it's really hard. It's really hard to link that hallway consult, but they will try. Um, so you base, this is just a plan to see that you need to make sure that when you're talking about patients, that you're like, oh, yeah, don't tell me the patient's name. You just want to hallway consult. I don't want to know. Like, all right, this is my opinion. And you can still communicate, but each step closer you get to that patient's care, the further you're entwined if there's a problem based on that diagnosis. So you have to uh, prove uh, duty, breach, that because of the breach, it caused the harm, and actually there was real harm. You know, if people are pissed off, that's not harm. That's a pain. And that might launch the start of some suits, but being angry or, like, if you just suffer, like, a little scar or you had a hypertrophic scar and you didn't really tell me, but it's little, it's, like, maybe on your back, there's not real harm there. You can't really put a dollar on that. You know, when harm comes, it's like, you know, bigger things. You know, you had to go, you, it got infected. You had to get, you know, uh, you know reoperated on. You had to get IV antibiotics. You were out of work, all this stuff. This is, this is that's harm. That's damages. Um, in some states, especially in Pennsylvania, you had to file a certificate of merit. Because of all the frivolous lawsuits that were going on, because people would try to sue just because they were angry. And a lot of times people are angry because they don't, they don't get communication from the provider. And so what will happen is that um, there are so many suits clogging up the courts, and by the time they got to the court, the judge will be like, you have no case. There was no harm. It's a shame you're mad, but nothing happened. You, you weren't really, there's no damages that you can put a dollar amount on. And so therefore, because people forget that the only reason why you go to court, the objective of going to court is to try to get relief, and they usually use a standard of, you know, making whole again without the problem. So, you know, you, you have to go to court, and the court has to be able to do something for you. If they can't do anything for you, you have no case. It would be unfortunate if something happened, but if they can't pay you or compensate you or replace it, there's nothing that we can do or that the judges can do. So what they do is they decide to say, you know what, if you're going to sue, you have to get another medical professional to say that you have a case. And this initially was very lax. They could get anybody. They could get any physician, like an ophthalmologist, to talk about a neurologic issue like stroke, but didn't have anything to do with the eyes. Or they could get like orthopedics to do something about, you know, family practice. I mean, they could get any kind of practitioner. And in some states, you have to look at this to see who it is that can file the certificate of merit. Now they're trying to tighten that little loophole up to say you have to have a physician who would know reasonably whether or not that that, had, that case had merit. There has to be some sort of experience or something to really hold up. So they're sort of tightening it to say, you know, we have to really be serious about this when we file these to try to decrease the amount of uh, frivolous suits. Once all this stuff is done, they start to investigate. They ask for records, like your main records. They, you know, the plaintiffs will start to feed out, you know, for expert opinions. And they want to know, do you have a case? Can you find an angle? Once all that stuff's done, if they think they have a suit, they can file the suit. And then they'll, they'll notify your attorney or they'll notify your employer or sometimes they'll even notify you that you are now being sued. And then they have more discovery. Now, they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to build their case. And this sometimes, they're trying to decrease the amount of time it takes. But this can be a long, long process. Um, they want, they'll give you written questions. And actually, if you ever saw the questions, there's like pages and pages of questions. 
it's like, what, what does that even have to do with this suit? But they're just trying to, what they're doing is they're trying to find it. They're trying to find any kind of chip in your armor to try to see, you know, oh, well, you graduated when, and you let your license lapse one time 20 years ago, and you know, and they'll sort of pick it out. They're, sort, they're trying to build a case, which is really a pain, and it's very disheartening, but that's what they do. Um, they'll request documents. Now they'll start getting depositions. They're going to start talk, talking to uh, witnesses, and they're going to pull in even more experts. Hopefully at some point during this, um, there, there'll be some sort of a settlement negotiation. Um, you know, you know how it's very expensive to take a case to court. Um, it's a lot of money to take the attorneys to, you know, have them face off there. Because if you lose in court, you, usually you try to appeal it. And this is thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So when the suit starts, immediately somebody starts figuring out, is it worth it to go on or should we stop? Should we pay them off? Even if they're wrong, even if you're absolutely right and you did everything perfect, it might be cheaper for them to settle than to go on. Uh, and then if you can't reach a, a negotiation or a settlement, then you have to go to court. I have to tell you, um, when, if, I don't, hopefully no one here has been sued, um, but when you get sued, it's a, an extremely uh, anxiety-provoking, um, it's very depressing, and practitioners who get sued become very isolated. They, sometimes they can get depressed. Because they, because the way we're wired to go into medicine, you're wired to help. You know, you're wired to help and you do your best job. That's what we're here for. And when your patients turn around and they say, oh, yeah, well, guess what? I'm going to sue you. And then they question every single thing. It's really, really disheartening. And there are physicians that once they get sued, they leave. They cannot take it anymore. They can't believe, especially if it goes to court. Because all of this stuff goes up and then you're sitting in court and you have the plaintiff's attorney who is hammering on your reputation in front of all these people and you're not allowed to say anything, right? Because you have a lawyer and everyone has to take turns because you're supposed to play nice. But meanwhile, this guy's like, look at her. Oh, now I've never been sued. I'm just telling you, this is the scenario. You know, they'll go, well, look at her. You know, she's just sitting there and here this poor guy is sick and... It's, it's just very, very nerve-wracking and isolating, and it's very unfortunate. But have a heart, because if you wind up getting sued, and you get it to a point that you have a really strong case, and your employer decides to take it to court, more likely than not, you'll win. Because by the time it gets to the court, your attorney, the defense attorney, has such a great case, they would not bring it to court if they didn't think they could win. And so most of the cases that are actually brought to court, they win. So maybe about 25% you lose. And these are even with jury trials. Um, you know, in Philadelphia, we had a, a huge problem because you know how health systems buy different hospitals? Well, you might have, like, the University of Penn buy a hospital in Paoli or Malvern or some outer county. And what would happen is that if something happened malpractice-wise, the patients would want to bring it into Philadelphia because Philadelphia juries, I don't know why, we, we, you know, we take good care of them. They hate physicians. Like when it comes to putting a jury case, a malpractice in front of a jury in Philadelphia, the juries will like kill the doctors and like usually will go in favor uh, of the plaintiffs. Um, but so what happened, this was called venue shopping. Um, what happened was they actually made a law that passed and did very well that said that if you get hurt 
in Paoli, that's where you have to bring your case. And that really cut down a lot of the suits because people are like, it's not even worth it because they, they won't even settle because, you know, they don't have that leverage anymore of like, we'll take you to the jury. Okay, so it is pretty bad getting sued. Um, it's, it's very upsetting. So the best thing to do is prevention. It's really important as a physician assistant that you understand the role of risk management. What it is, what do they do, why are they always looking over my shoulder, you know, but understanding why they're there and being able to use them is important. You need to review the documentation fairly regular, not regularly, maybe once a year, once every two years, depending on how long you've worked there. But you should look at the documentation regarding your scope of practice. You should also try, no matter what, to improve your documentation. Okay, um, being familiar with your, um, oh, conducting physical exams that address the patient's complaint. Even though they come in for X and you discover Y, which is far more serious than X, you need to address X because patients get pissed. If you don't address, they don't care what you do, but if you don't address what they come in for, they don't like that and they get mad. And if you are working out this and then they wind up getting hurt for the other, less, what you thought was lesser, that, that's a serious problem. And also, it's not just the medical malpractice. It's also the relationship that you're trying to keep with your patients. Become familiar with your hospitals and offices' um, policies on reporting adverse outcomes. Say you don't make a mistake. Let's just say something happened and it was bad. Well, how, do you know how to report a, a problem in your office? If something goes wrong, if something gets burnt accidentally, or little, little, you're not real big, but is there a process in your office to say, okay, this is what you do when there's a problem. You fill out this form, you talk to this person, you should have those policies in place and you should be aware of them. Uh, obtain the ne necessary uh, level of malpractice coverage. We'll talk about that in a second. That has to do with where you are and uh, where you practice and uh, what you practice. Consider the use of clinical practice guidelines. You know, when you come in and a patient has this, what are the steps that you file? file? They are very, um, you have to be careful because when it's written down, you know, if you get sued, that goes to the plaintiff's lawyer. Everyone looks at that and they go through it with a fine-tooth comb. And if you didn't follow that clinic, clinical practice guideline, you better be able to say why. So you want to make sure that the guidelines, although help because they, they're based, they should be based in evidence-based medicine as well as your own uh, physician's uh, preferences, um, you need to make sure that they're built a little bit general so that it, it gives you some wiggle room. And communication is very, very key. I did it again, sorry. Okay, all right, so risk management. Risk management's job, especially in a hospital, is to identify and evaluate risk, okay? They need to implement methods to reduce the risk. So you know how, you know, if something goes wrong, there needs to be a policy in place to say, when this goes wrong, this is what you do, one, two, three, four. And that's important to, to um, look at and be able to act on that if, in case anything happens. And they also do incident review and most importantly, an action plan. If something happens, and let's just, let's use, you know, a bovie. Let's just say um, something happens with the bovie and, you know, it wasn't turned, it wasn't set up to turn on or you had like a crash cart and it wasn't fixed and something may have happened, nobody was hurt, 
but something went wrong. Well, risk management's job is to come in and say, okay, we can't have this happen ever again. Let's look at the system view and find out what the procedure is. And that's really important because that will protect you in case you get sued because you can say, we have a risk management policy and I followed it to the letter. And that just helps to build your case um, as being a, a good practitioner. Clearly understand what your scope of practice is. And it doesn't really matter you know, what one thing says over, well, it does a little bit, but you need to understand what all of the scope of practices are. You need to understand what your state permits, what your hospital permits. You know, sometimes you go to one hospital, they don't want you to write orders. You go to another hospital, you know, they want you to, you know, do certain procedures or give certain medications, and another hospital won't. You have to understand, and you're held to that standard. So if the state says, oh, sure, you can, you know, transfuse blood, but your hospital says, no, you are not transferring, the hospital rules. You know, the hospital trumps. You need to understand what the, the physician uh, permits. What is he or she comfortable with having you do? Understand what your work agreement says and what it says you can do. Uh, and also, it really, really counts what you're comfortable with, especially people who are transitioning into a new field or if you're a new graduate. You need to be comfortable. Sure, you know, you can put a central line in, but are you comfortable doing it? You know, because just because I can put in a central line independently doesn't mean I could do it the first time I did it. You know, you need to know, like, I have to be comfortable with it. You know, what are the protocols to learn how to do that? And that also counts. Because if you get up there and you do something that you weren't really comfortable with, and you're on the stand and you go, well, you know, I really didn't want to do that. I only did one before. And, uh, okay, you might as well just get out your checkbook and go, okay, how much? All right, so you want to make sure that you, all this stuff has to balance. Okay, as you know, and this is, a little fun, this is a little stranger now with electronic health records, but it still holds true. If it wasn't written down, it wasn't done. You can make an argument of habit, that this is my habit, I always do this. Why wouldn't you start writing it down then? I don't know. You, but if it's not written down, that is a long row to hoe when it comes to trying to defend it. You need to make sure that all this stuff is dated, timed, signed, that it's objective, not subjective, that it's relevant, timely, like you did it when it, it was supposed to be done and not two days later. It wasn't done when you found out it was sued and then you went back. That does, that's really bad. You can read it. That's not so much with electronic records, but it's, a lot of people are still working with paper charts. This is a real problem with date and time. You know, I, I see some, some of the notes that I've reviewed, the problem was timing. Because, you know, the patient had shortness of breath starting when? And then when did you come in? Because when is key. Because if when's not documented, they're going to assume that you are in unless you're definitely out. So you're trying to make sure, and it's also good for patient care, right? I'm sort of talking on the legal aspects, but also patient care. You know, if you're coming in, you want to know exactly what's going on when you go back to review those notes. So you should definitely make a point of dating and timing them. Um, and late entry late entries and errors. You need to understand how to make a late entry and how to make a correction. Because if you, for those of you who are still writing with paper, if you go in there and you cross it off and then you write something else, the plaintiff's lawyer, if that was an issue, will hire a hand, handwriting expert and they will look, they'll hold it up to the light. What do you think it says, okay? And they will try to figure that out. And if they really can't figure out, it's to the plaintiff's benefit that they'll say, no, you know what, you were wrong and you were trying to cover up. So remember errors, you have to put a line through it, and then you date, you initial it, and then you date it.
Late entries are not to be squeezed in and fit in. Okay, they need to have their own addendum. You got to put it right out there. It was late. You know, I did this. I got caught up in surgery. I did this procedure, and I came back. Everybody else was writing in front of me. And then you just write, you know, addendum. You don't have to put late addendum. Just put addendum and then sign and date it. This is only general information. Okay, some other um, documentation reminders. Um, don't forget to sign them uh, and sign your name. Um, make sure, I know you, it's really busy. I know there's a million things to do. But make sure, like, right before you close the chart, did I address everything? What are all the problems that this patient had? Did I address everything? Did I re review what I needed to review? Record your rationale for your treatment and your diagnosis. This will help you in case you're wrong. Because as long as it's well thought out, it's okay. You know, you could be wrong. As long, it can't be something blatant, but as long as it's, yeah, that's, that's an honest mistake. You know, you could have done that, and then you're going to follow up. Then you would have figured out it wasn't this diagnosis, it was another diagnosis. That's okay. You can do that. But having that documentation will really, really help you. Um, Follow-up. Recording follow-up is really, really key. Patients get really upset if, if they're just left to nothing. So if you say, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, that's, you know, uh, it, it'll be better. You need to take that extra step and say, you know what, why don't you follow up with me? Call next week, call in two weeks, make an appointment. You can always cancel it. That follow-up has got to be documented and it's got to be done. This helps in your case because say you let this patient go and tomorrow something happens. Well, as long as you said that there was follow-up, that makes your case stronger. You know, they were supposed to call me if something happened. They, they were definitely, they already made the appointment. I told them to make the appointment. It's documented. That really, really helps your case. You're just trying to do good medicine, okay? But it would also help if what is while you're doing it that you're protecting yourself. Okay, once you get, if you wind up getting noticed that there's either a suit or the patient's angry enough to sue or there's trouble brewing, don't change the record. Don't rip out things. Don't erase it. Don't delete it. Leave it alone because you know what? They will find it. And if they find it, you just got your checkbook. How much? Okay, because, you, because the main thing that we do as, uh, you do as healthcare practitioners is put your reputation out there. You can trust me because I do the right thing. And if they see you're pulling things out or changing it or crossing it out, deleting it, that, that's a serious problem. Even if you're right, it's much better to go, oh, yeah, that entry was in there, but that was incorrect. And you notice here, there's my entry that corrects that entry. Or, you know, you line it through so that everyone can see it and you date it. Um, and don't remove deleted pages, and really, don't start chart wars. You know, um, you know, he said he was going to, you know, orthopedics said they were going to put the cast on, and they never did. And now the patient's complaining. I've seen this. It's like, are you crazy? Okay, the only thing that should be in the medical chart is what has to do with the patient. You know, what is the objective thing about the patient? Even if it's his fault, that's not your job. Your job is to document what you're doing and how it's going along and what was happening. And if you do that, there's no need for chart wars. Because when you start having a chart war, they're going to pull that person in to say, okay, well, can you tell me about this? And that's another witness that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort. So you want to make sure that you're just objective. Just say, you know, keep to the, you, what you usually do. Clearly document. Um, and don't, you know, erase anything. Okay. So for practice policies, you should really understand your employment contract. You should understand um, the things that you can do, you know, who is your employer, who is your supervisors. You need to have all that stuff uh, uh, in the front and you need to uh, be aware of it. 
You want to know about clinical practice guidelines. Are they there? Are they not there? If they are there and they make them up, like if you're in a hospital or a big practice where they consider these things, you should definitely have your foot in the door when they start making up this stuff. Because if they make it too narrow, it's going to limit you on making your choices when you need to make a different decision. They need to be general, and that's the best ones that help. In your work agreement, you also want to make sure that it's general because you don't want to change your work agreement every couple of years because you learn something new. You want to, and there's lots of examples of, you know, our state association has an example of an ideal work, uh, work agreement. There's work agreements usually in the state um, statutes about what, you, what we can and what we can't do. But you want to keep it general so as you grow, you don't have to keep going back and refiling it. Um, understand what your policies are for incidence reports. You know, it's not just, you know, just tell the nurse, unless that's actually the thing. And make sure that when you do that, you document, oh, per protocol, nurse was notified and they're supposed to fill the form. Or I'm supposed to fill the form and I did. And then you do that. You should also understand what to do about patient complaints. Don't blow off patients. If they start getting angry, don't walk away, don't blow them off. You need to understand, well, you know what, let me talk to the patient advocate, let me talk to my supervisor. You need to do something when patients complain because a lot of times people will sue just because they're angry. Okay, I'll give you an example. My husband um, is a physician and he was uh, doing one of these cases and he was uh, examining the patient uh, for the defense. Okay, so the patient who's suing the doctor is in his office and the lawyer comes in, the plaintiff's lawyer comes in, and the plaintiffs actually said, no, you leave, attorney, you leave. And so when they were alone, my, they tell my husband, you know, the only reason why we're suing, and, and he's like, wait a minute. She goes, no, I'm going to tell you why. Because when we went there, we had this complaint. And the doctor looked at me and said, listen, you're a housewife. I'm the doctor. This cast stays on. <laughs> All right, we... we and she had damages, but she wasn't damaged because, I mean, she, wasn't, she was complaining because she had all this residual and lengthy pain. She was really pissed because the doctor talked to her like that. And the husband's like, yeah, he talked to my wife like that. It's, it's all you have to, most of the time, if you just talk to them, listen to them, if they have a complaint, that's a trigger that I should take care of this complaint, or at least pass it to someone who will take care of the complaint. And again, you know, what happens if something bad happens? What do you do? Like if something happened right now, would you know who to call, who to talk to, and what form to file? If not, you should go back and talk to your docs and your office managers. Okay, communicating. Basically a definition to convey knowledge of or information about, to make known and to reveal by clear signs. You have to talk. You have to talk in a way that people can understand you. What I usually, what I usually did was, especially in neurosurgery and GYN and stuff, sometimes things got really, really complicated. You always try to start out, and my doctors also taught me this, you always start out really, really slow. Because you can, you know, if they're starting to say, yeah, yeah, all right, can you tell me that, repeat what I just said. If they're getting it, then you can go up a notch, you know, and then you can, you know, try to figure out where, what level you can talk to them at, understanding. But you should definitely always start very, very simple, because people like that. Um, give handouts and pictures. Have them throughout the, you know, if you're talking to them about something serious, stop and have them repeat back. What did I just say? What do you think I just said? Okay, um, and that's important because a lot of times you can clear things up right then and there. Um, remember the door handle? You get up. Okay, thanks a lot. Say, oh, and one more thing. It's like, why? what's with the door handle? Okay, but sometimes what happens if you sit there 
and you take a second, patients really like that. Do you have anything else? Because then, if they say no, you're more likely to get out the door and get on to your next patient. Because if you just got, okay, fine, and you put the handle on, it triggers them to go, but there's one more thing. Okay, and I have to tell you, you know, back in your history taking courses, remember they used to tell you that if you just took one minute, to one 60 seconds to listen to your patients, the patients come out of the office, she really listens to me. She really understands, she took the time. It took 60 seconds, but that was what they want. They want an opportunity to be heard. And when it comes to relationships, the better relationship you, ha you have, the less likely that you're going to be sued, and the more likely that you're going to be able to give care that's appropriate and understandable to your patient. Um, talk to your patients. Uh, and document, of course you have to document what you talked about. If the patient doesn't want to do what you want to do, doesn't want to do, recommend the treatment of this, okay? Um, talk to your physicians regularly, okay? If you can show that you, like even as a, as a PA, you know, we're not trained as, as intensely as physicians. Even though we may get a lot of, lot of information, we're still married to our team aspect of working with physicians. You need to be able to demonstrate that there is a team there. Okay, sure, I, I can call him anytime with questions and he takes my phone calls. Okay, you should make a point like during the week. I know you guys are really busy, but you need to make sure that you can work on this relationship. Oh, can I ask you a quick, quick question about blah, blah, blah? Quick questions. Usually physicians will listen to quick questions. If they go, you have a question? Oh, I don't really have time. But you say, oh, I have a quick question. They'll go, okay, usually. Um, and report uh, incidents or problems. Okay, uh, now we're, we're very quickly, I don't know how much time we have. Um, okay, I'm not seeing any hands or a hook, so. Uh, so insurance, what you wanna do is you want to decide when it comes to insurance. Should you have employer-only insurance or should I get my own? I know a lot of people have their own insurance. When I was practicing, even with neurosurgery and even with emergency medicine, I always just took the employer insurance and I was fine with that. Um, but now as things get, you know, it depends on where you are. Like if you moonlight, if you change jobs often, or you're not really sure about your employer, you might want to consider getting your own insurance in addition to the hospital or your employer's insurance. You want to think about limits of liability. Do they meet your state requirements? And are they enough for you for your own practice? Your state might have one limit, but if you're in neurosurgery, uh, your limits are going to be a little bit higher. Okay, so you want to make sure that you have enough insurance. Um, read your employment contracts. Sometimes it says, if you get sued, you have to pay anything that we have to uh, bill out for you or we have to pay for you, you have to pay me back. Okay, you want to be aware of that. Um, not that you'll ever get sued, but if you do get sued, you want to know, do I have to pay you, I have to pay you back? Are you kidding me? Um, and it wouldn't be like the malpractice insurance, but it might be incidentals, you know, uh, and you want to make sure that you're aware of that. You want to make sure that you have consistency in coverage. When you leave job A, you need to have insurance when you start job B. And if there's any time in between, do you, do you need insurance? Or, you know, if the, you know, you're going to have to think about tail insurance, which we'll talk about in a second. The thing to consider about getting your own insurance policy, it depends on where you work. It depends on a lot of things, and you really need to, do your own consideration. But you need, need to understand that in your insurance policy, there's probably some blurb, or even in your employment contract that says around their medical malpractice, that if the insurance company decides, they can decide to settle at any time without your permission. Okay, sometimes you want to know that because say you're right, 
You're absolutely right, and you are mad that someone has not only questioned your judgment, but you're right, and that you should not be sued. If the insurance company, at any point, if they have this language, they can just say, you know what? We're paying. We're going to settle, and that's it, and that's too bad for you. And so you, need to under you just need to be aware who has control there. You know, a lot of times it is the insurance company. A lot of times you can't do anything about that, but it's just nice to know. Uh, okay. Okay, then, you know, people always talk about claims occurrence uh, uh, versus occurrence insurance. Occurrence, you really don't find that much anymore because that basically is insurance coverage um, at the time that the incident occurred, not when it was reported. Claims is when it was reported. So even if it happened, you know, um, while the policy is in effect. Um, you know, so if, you know, you did something uh, last year and you change your insurance company this year, who's going to pay for that? Okay, so you want to make sure that, you know, the insurance companies are going to cover any of those past claims. And while you're in on the, um, when you get a new job, you need to have what's called tail insurance so that even if an incident occurred last year, and now they're suing you, your new insurance company probably won't want to pay for that. You need to have a separate policy. The question here, which is also in your um, employment, should be in your employment agreement, is who pays for that towel coverage? Um, sometimes, you know, you have to pay for it. You leave, you pay for it. Sometimes your employer will pay for it. Uh, a lot of times with physicians, they have, you know, the employer will pay for the towel coverage. Sometimes it depends on why you leave. If you leave because you have a drug habit, or because you know you are you just are terrible. It's up to the employer to choose. Um, they may remain you know if they want to you know fire you or uh, you leave for a reason. They may not want to pay it, and then you're stuck with it. And it does cost some you know cost a couple hundred bucks, um, depending on what you're doing. So you want to you just want to know who's paying for the tail, and then again who decides when to settle. Okay, talk about the bovie. Um, this is a real case. This uh, case had just got settled. Uh, a nurse anesthetist increases oxygen to a patient 100% and fails to inform the surgeon. Now, oxygen's gathering up in the face mask. The surgeon then turns on the bovie, and the patient gets significantly burned on the face. Okay, now, when that case was getting built, they had the hospital, they had the surgeon, they had the nurses, they had as many people, pockets available. And then as they started to tweak through it, the hospital was able to get out of it. The surgeon was able to get out of it. Everybody was able to get out of it except for the nurse anesthetist because the nurse anesthetist, it was proved, was definitely the one at fault, and there was nothing anybody else could have done to prevent that I issue. So this nurse gets sued. So the question is, who's going to raise her defense? Does the insurance company raise the defense when the employer is out? You might want to think about that. And then, you know, when you're having this kind of discussion, who's in, who's out, whose fault, who wasn't, you know, having your own insurance means that you have your own attorney whose only job is to defend you. They don't care about the hospital. They don't care about anybody else. The only person they care about is you to get you out of the suit. Some people, you know, want that comfort. But I'll tell you, the uh, attorneys that work for your employers are very, very good. They don't want you to get sued either, okay? And so they will really work hard. But there is that little bit of an issue that when it comes to, you know, now we're out of it, can we defend her still? Um, so that's just something to consider, something to think about. Okay, I found some dermatology cases. Not many people get sued for dermatology, which is good. But um, basically, there's a patient, year one, presents with a spot. It was removed, but they didn't do a biopsy on it. So you can sort of, so if you're a plaintiff's attorney, even a defense attorney, you can sort of start playing like, all right, now, is that standard of care? 
Do, do other people, what incidents, you know, what kind of conditions would lead you just to do, a, a, you know, take it off without doing a biopsy? Is that, you know, some sort of an issue there? Uh, patient's recurrent lesion comes back, uh, and she, uh, he or she was re-biopsy. It was showed that it was malignant, and he dies. Okay, so, you know, people sometimes go, oh, you know, why should I sue? But, you know, people have a right to sue. I know it's a sad thing, but patients have a right to sue, and they also have a right to be compensated. We all, uh, for those of you who are at this morning's talk, we're talking about quality and medical errors. We do make significant mistakes. You know, people die because we make a mistake, and patients are, required, are, are entitled to know what the mistake was, who made the mistake, and get compensated if possible. Okay, so, you know, on the one hand, I sort of like go like this, you know, I'm more of a defense person, but you have to understand that patients just want to know, and if they've been wronged, if they've been hurt, you know, they, they're entitled to be whole again. Um, okay, so this person was successfully sued for failure to diagnose. The second one is a mole on the thigh, punch biopsy. This was misread. This was uh, read as benign. Uh, the patient comes back, uh, gets a second removal because they didn't like the doctor, so they go to a second doctor and say, yeah, what do you think about this? So they, not only, not only did they re-biopsy it, but they re-read the report, the original report, and realized it was read incorrectly or interpreted incorrectly. Uh, so because the uh, excisional biopsy revealed invasive, superficial, spreading malignant melanoma, and this person won because it was misdiagnosis and failure to treat. Because as long as, if the, one of the things that will win a suit is that, but if you did see it, would there have been a change in the outcome? Okay, and sometimes that's an, uh, a nice argument that defense will take. They'll say, well, she missed the diagnosis. However, even if she got the diagnosis and even if you got the treatment, you know, according to statistics, you'd still have this terrible outcome in five years. So even the misdiagnosis didn't actually cause the harm. So there's lots of like things that go along um, you know, with trying to defend and also bring a case. Um, but in this case, uh, they got snagged for misdiagnosis and failure to treat. Okay, uh, some special uh, considerations that uh, you might do as uh, dermatology PAs is monitor the drugs that you give your patients. Make sure that there's appropriate follow-up. You know, how did that medication work? Did it work? Did it not? Are you using it right? Did you have any kind of reactions with it? Give an appropriate informed consent. Make sure that it's clear. I know it, this is all time consuming, um, but you have to make sure that people are aware of the risk, uh, the benefits of the surgery, alternatives to the procedure, um, as well as expectation of results. Well, what do you think? You know, we're going to leave you, you know, with a little scar. You know, is it going to be a hypertrophic scar? What are the chances? You know, you need to talk to your patients. You know, it's like being on a train, or like, you know, if you're on a train and the train stops. As long as they're silent, people start getting mad. Well, what's wrong? Well, what's going on? I don't understand. But if the conductor comes in and says, oh, we had to stop because there's like a cat on the road. And, you know, this is it. And they keep giving you periodic updates. Everybody's relaxed. Okay, fine. Oh, this is going to be a while. I better call my wife, my husband, whatever. Um, and that's what patients want. They want to know what to expect. Um, uh, make sure that, you know, you have appropriate uh, training. You know, if you're allowed to do procedures now and then, you know, in a month from now you're going to be trained to be able to do another procedure, you should make sure that that's documented. 
You know, how can we tell that you're actually ready to do the second step of the procedure? We should be able to follow to a guideline or a practice protocol that says, sure, you know, they do this many, you know, we were trained, what is it, like something like, you know, she, you know, went to this course, uh, she was observed doing it five times, you know, uh, she observed me doing it five times, and then she did it five times on her own without problems, and now she can do it on her own. Okay, that's a much better way of doing it than to say, oh yeah, she could do it and something bad happened. Um, how did she get trained for that? Uh, I'm not really sure. Okay, so it's better to document it and have a plan about being able to do more and more uh, procedures. And regular uh, reporting of incidents and documentation of action taken. Again, you know, if you don't have like an official risk management person, um, at the very least your office manager or somebody needs to be in charge of saying, okay, Where's the problem? Where do you file it? And what do we do about them? Okay, and then we're just basically going to wrap up uh, to talk about uh, apologies versus disclosure. Um, you know, something happens, okay? And, you know, if you hurt your patients, I mean, talk about, you know, being, you know, driven crazy. I mean, who wants to hurt? You don't get into medicine wanting to hurt patients. But what happens um, is that, you know, you, the question is, do you apologize? Do you say you're sorry? Or, you know, sometimes if it's really bad, you're actually required to tell the patient what happened and then write it down. So there's this issue, there's a difference between apology and disclosure. Disclosure is just telling the patient what happened um, and writing it down and then walking away. And apology is actually saying, I'm sorry. Now, you're not going, well, you probably will believe this. Um, there was before these apology rules, if you went into a patient and you went in and you sat down and you said, I am so sorry that that biopsy got infected and this happened. I am so sorry about that. That patient could turn around and use your apology against you when trying to find liability in the case. But you apologized. You did it wrong. And this was driving people crazy. And actually, there's now been laws to say that if you apologize within a certain amount of time, it's got, it can't be six months, it can't be when you have the suit in your hand, it has to be relatively soon. That if you apologize, it won't be used against you. But not every state has it. Even Pennsylvania, we don't have an apology rule, we have a disclosure rule, but we don't have an apology rule. It's right now sitting in our house to be voted on. Um, there's only 36 states that do have apology rules, so you need to be aware of that. If you have to apologize, don't go in, well, this is not legal advice. This is just general information. If something happens, you may not want to go in right away and start going, oh my God, I'm sorry, I can't believe that happened. I'm such an idiot. Okay, you want to take a moment and think about what you're going to say, okay? An apology may be necessary. You need to talk to your physician, your risk manager, your office manager. You need to know what the procedure is. You want to try to do it fairly quickly. You might, they might require that you sit down with the risk manager, with their attorney, with the doctor, not the attorney. If you put attorneys in on the thing, it gets everybody really upset very quickly. So you might want to sit down, but you want to plan it out. You also want to think before you start apologizing. You can apologize, but remember, stick to the facts. Don't say, oh my God, you know what must have happened? It must have been turned up all the way. You don't want to say, if you don't know for sure, even if you knew for sure, you might not want to say, you might just want to stick to the thing, I'm sorry, this happened to you. And then if, they, you, know, if you know exactly what, you know, just stick with the truth, be objective, don't make stuff up, don't argue, you know, don't argue with it, don't debate it, because all these memories come back really, really quick. You want to just go in, you know, contact the normal people, sit down, relax, I'm really sorry this happened. Okay, this is what we know, and make sure it's the truth.
um, and listen to your patient and be empathetic. If you apologize appropriately and sincerely enough, patients are less likely to sue. They, you know, they had this one case where something tragic happened and the team went in and apologized to the family. And instead of the family turning around and suing them, which they could, but because the child was lost and there's nothing else they could do, they actually established a fund to help the kid or to make sure that this accident didn't happen again. They, and their main thing was that they apologized. They apologized sincerely. They, made, they helped us understand exactly what happened, and this was just unfortunate. Now, that is unusual. However, it does show you that the power of the proper apology is uh, really important. When you are sued, you need to notify your employer. You need to notify your risk management. Uh, you need to notify your insurance carrier. Okay, you can't, don't touch the record in any way unless it's to continue patient care. You don't want to change anything. You don't want to talk about the case to anybody. Okay, you know, um, you don't want to talk to the, the secretaries, receptions. You don't want to talk about the nuances of the case to anybody because the first question the attorneys ask, have you talked to anybody about this case? Because if you said, yeah, you know, I, you know, went to the bar and then I, you know, was talking to my boyfriend and I told him all about it, boyfriend's coming in. Okay, they're going to talk to the boyfriend. They want to know what you said to him and see if they can use that. So you need to be really, just don't talk about the case. Even if you're being sued along with the, the doctor, don't talk about it. Okay, you don't have to review the case. You don't have to go, oh my God, what did I do? It's okay. You know, because what, you'll see the chart. You'll find out what's going on. They will give you the chart. They'll say, have you reviewed this case? I haven't touched that case since the last time I saw that patient. And then you'll be given an opportunity to read it, and that's okay. All right, um, let's see, uh, speak to an attorney. Uh, you wanna be as honest as possible because if, you gotta be honest with the attorney because eventually it all comes out. And so it's a lot easier for them to know heads up what's going on and there's you know, attorney-client privileges. Even if the attorney is being paid for by your employer, what you say to them is still privileged. It doesn't matter who pays your bill. Um, so you need to be as honest as possible because that's the only way that you can really raise the best defense or settle you know, at a cheap stage instead of letting it uh, snowball. And then finally, seriously consider talking to someone about being sued if you feel distraught about it in general terms. Okay, if you wanna to talk to your spouse or your friends, like I'm being sued, this is really hard, I can't believe it, but leave out the details. She said, he said, this is what I did, no details. Just because the main reason to talk about it is to sort of relieve the angst uh, that is going to be building up because this is a very, very uh, high anxiety kind of process. Okay, here's a patient. Um, patient comes in, an infant presents to the emergency room. She, uh, the patient had nausea, uh, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, it also turned out that the patient, I see people coming up, uh, didn't speak English. Okay, but they didn't get an interpreter. Uh, for some reason, the uh, practitioner decided he was teething and discharged the patient. Uh, the baby died in 24 hours from dehydration because he didn't take that extra step to say about the diapers, you know, checking the temperature. I mean, he didn't, they didn't do anything. And that was really terrible. And this was a successful suit, uh, failure to diagnose and failure to treat. So it's really, you know, we do make mistakes. Sometimes we make really bad mistakes. Um, but if you try to um, uh, limit your risk uh, by doing some of the things that we talked about, uh, hopefully you guys will keep going on without being sued ever. Okay? All right, I say I have to go. But thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it.